Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. On June 28, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir presumptive to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was mortally shot by a young Serbian nationalist, Gavrilo Princip. When Princip pulled the trigger, he would unknowingly convict 20 million soldiers and civilians, many of them young men like himself, to their deaths. World War I was called the war to end all wars. Triggered by this lone assassination, it would give way to some of history's most costly battles, heroic endeavors, and long-lasting technological inventions. One event, though, stands out as a unique and truly remarkable story of humanity at its most inspiring, vulnerable, and hopeful levels. This is the story of the Christmas Truce of 1914. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Missing Chapter. You're here with Phil Horner and Phil Schaff. We are joined today by a familiar face, a familiar voice. Uh, guest storyteller is back in the studio with us today. And he's also introduced us to a new coffee, uh, Crew Coffee, spelled K-R-U. It's a Guatemalan blend. It's a dark roast, and it's really good. Um, I was making some notes earlier. It, it's got a really strong cocoa undertone to it. It's roasty. It's a dark roast, and, and it's really good. It's enjoyable. It, it, it's very different from some of the Utica coffee that we've had, so it's nice to, to have this to compare it to. I like it. It's a nice variety, and uh, Chris, you, you know the owner. Is that the connection? I do, yeah. I want to give a special thanks to Rebecca Winters. She is the owner of High Wheeler Cafe, which is located on 84 Canal Street in Fort Plain. I've known Rebecca for a long, long time now, and she started this business out of nothing. And it just has to be known that if you – want great coffee, a great matcha latte, an espresso, you do not have to go to Saratoga or Albany to get it. You can go right to downtown Fort Plain and she will make you an amazing brew. So definitely go stop by there, grab some coffee. You'll thank us. You'll love it. Um, and Rebecca, thank you. Yeah. And it's really good. I think we'll have this one again for sure. Absolutely. And it, it, it sets a nice tone uh, for what we know is going to be a great, a great story uh, today, Chris. Yeah, so just for the listeners, uh, just a reminder, episode three, we, we touched upon World War One, and we had um, the very beginning uh, of, the, of the war. And now Chris is, is here to tell us a, a very, very interesting and kind of shocking part of World War One that I don't think too many people know about. Yeah, um, and that's just it. I think it's really important to set a context for any good story because this context is going to really show us just exactly how improbable what happened actually was. So... In the summer of 1914, World War I breaks out. This entanglement of alliances leads to mass devastation and mass killing at a scale that humanity has really never seen up until then. Um, at the beginning of the war, the Germans planned on invading France through Belgium and the Netherlands in an effort to prevent a two-front war called the Schlieffen Plan. And they had really wanted to knock out France really early in the war so that they could divert all their forces out, you know, back towards Russia 
um, hold off Russia while they you know, divert their attention to France. Um, by the month of August, fortified lines had solidified and begun stabilizing. At this point, a long war would be in store for everyone involved. The four-month span between August and December of 1914 was extremely costly for both sides. At this point, by December of 1914, almost half a million soldiers on both sides had already laid dead. The first Battle of the Marne, which was a German attempt to take Paris, and was their hopes for a quick victory, ended in a very costly stalemate. On August of 22nd, France had lost 27,000 soldiers during the Battle of the Frontiers in one day alone. Meanwhile, on the Eastern Front, hundreds of thousands of Russian soldiers had perished in the defense of the motherland. But what did this set the stage for? A peace that had seemed unlikely. Many had wished that the war would have been quick and decisive. Visions of glory and national honor had given way to the reality of trenches, rats, artillery, and machine gun fire. Millions of young men from Britain, France, Austria, Russia, Germany were promised to be home before Christmas, a promise that was tragically unfulfilled. The letters, journals, memoirs from thousands of all sides echo a similar sentiment, and that sentiment was that no one foresaw a total war. John Grover, a private in the English Army, he wrote, no one had any idea what the implication of a total war would be. We had thought that it would be a quick clash as in 1870 when German, Germany overran France. We thought, though, that this time we would be the victors. German soldier Heinrich Buteau said, after the enthusiasm and patriotism came a wave of quietness when the first death lists were published in the papers. This reality would continue to manifest and become ever more real as Christmas Eve approached. But this night, though, something would change along the vast tracks of the Western Front. So I think, Chris, just to give everybody a background here, the, the idea of a total war, coming into this war, we, we, we told you about episode three where we talked about the spark that really started everything, which was the assassination of the Archduke. But mm -hmm. I don't think anybody leading up to that point really realized how intertwined Central Europe specifically was at this point and the casualties that would ensue because of that. That's absolutely correct. And I think that went from the highest levels of command all the way down to the basic privates, the main soldiers, the foot soldiers who comprised every one of these armies. I think everyone thought that they would be the benefactors of a swift victory that would bring them glory, honor, everything that they wanted. But most of the counts from letters, the journals, the memoirs of all of these soldiers on every side, whether German, Belgian, French, or English, they state that on Christmas Eve, the night was beautiful. It was a beautiful moonlit night. There was frost on the ground. Snow was blanketing everything. It was white almost everywhere. Charles Brewer of the Bedfordshire Regiment of the 2nd Battalion, he details for us that as he raised his head to look over at the German trenches, he describes a sparkling line of Christmas trees lining the entire German trench line. As the lieutenant looked, he said that the multitude of lit trees glimmered like beads on a necklace under the moonlight. And so as Brewer is gazing at this site, the English soldiers, they notice the rising voices of German soldiers singing. And they're probably wondering, well, singing, what's going on here? And, and they notice a familiar song and they hear Silent Night or Stille Nacht in German being sung. So, Chris, in my mind, I'm thinking in terms of the war and, and as historians, we usually gauge you know, who's winning a war versus who's losing a war more in terms of territory right. and land lost as opposed to casualties. But from the perspective of the soldier, the regular ordinary soldier sitting in a trench, 
six months into a major global conflict. And you just gave us all those statistics. It doesn't matter if you are on the German side or the French and the British side. These statistics are off the charts. Absolutely. In terms of Christmas, when does it become self-preservation as a soldier? Um, and just thinking along those lines, when are, when are we moving away from, I, I love my country, I believe in our cause, but the objective might not be as significant as me returning home for Christmas. And I think Christmas, right. out of all the holidays, are we, are we talking more of this is a religiously significant holiday for them? Or is it just that, the, the yearning to be home, the nostalgia of what Christmas stands for? In terms of family? That's a great question, Phil, or a series of questions. I think the answer to all of that is yes. Um, the self-preservation aspect must have kicked in as soon as they started fighting on these fortified trench lines where the machine gun fire is taking out thousands of people every day. Um, as for the religious and, and yearning for home aspect, well, it's both. We, we had the accounts of soldiers um, holding their faith very strongly during, you know, in the foxholes, um, but also they all believed they were going to be home already at this point. Every side thought this would be really quick um, and very decisive, and it was the exact opposite. And so because of the numbers, you had mentioned the, you know, the stats, over half a million soldiers lay dead on either side. And I want to really take some time to give the personal individual accounts of what some of these soldiers experienced. And so um, on Christmas Eve, we have records that around 8.30 p.m., an officer of the Royal Irish Rifles Brigade he reported to headquarters that the Germans have illuminated their trenches and are now singing songs. Germans are now attempting to wish us a merry and blessed Christmas. Compliments are being exchanged, but nevertheless, I'm still taking all military precautions. So guys, we're really, really fortunate to have thousands of accounts of what happened on Christmas Eve of 1914 from all sides, whether British, French, German. Um, but one specific account that I found that I thought really summarized the events of this night best was from Graham Williams of the 5th London Rifle Brigade. And he says, first the Germans would sing one of their carols, and then we would sing one of ours. We would begin singing, O Come All Ye Faithful, and the Germans would immediately join in singing the same hymn to the Latin words, Adeste Fidelis. And I thought to myself, isn't this just the most extraordinary thing? Two nations both singing the same hymns and carols in the middle of this great war. Guys, and so I look at this, and I can't think of a time or a conflict in modern history where such a, such an event like this really happened. I mean, what, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I was thinking the same thing. I'm trying to rack my brain a different point in history, a different war where you almost had this cross line com um, camaraderie. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm with you. I, I, one doesn't really come to mind to, to drop your weapons. You're, you're obviously incredibly in, ingrained in this war. You're, uh, having guns pointed at each other, and then at the same time, those guns are are, are face down, and now you're right. in the middle of, of no man's land. Like it, it, all this stuff just doesn't add up, right. right? And it's not a civil war. This is an international conflict, absolutely. Um, so there's that that element to to consider as well, right? And so I think it's safe to say that had nothing else happened beyond this night than the events that were just priorly discussed, this still would have been a, a completely remarkable historical event, still worthy of you know a podcast. Um, in this discussion, had it just been thousands of men on opposite sides of the trenches singing, you know, the same carols, same hymns, but in their respective languages, this would have been remarkable. If they just would have spent Christmas Day in their trenches, thinking of family, of home, mm -hmm. um, solemnly just meditating on what was what was really happening here, it still would have been remarkable. But the best part is that it was just getting started, and um, 
we have across the Western Front this 500-mile front line. So think about that. That's an entire national border between Belgium all the way to southern Germany and, and most of France. Um, and, and so we have these thousands of men who just a day ago were trying to kill each other. And they start approaching each other across no man's land in a spirit of, of friendship and respect. Totally unheard of. Um, we have British soldiers bringing out bully beef, rum, cigarettes, meeting with the German soldiers and, and laughing. And they start to trade. The German soldiers trade their sausages, their coffee and their cognac with them. And the, the commanders and the leaders are just astounded. But they're not willing to, to shut this down because they themselves are really embracing this, at least at the it, lower at least, levels. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and across this 500-mile front line, we have soldiers coming across the no, you know, no man's land, and they're starting to together dig and pave the artillery shells, the deep craters and holes that are you know within these uh, the, the, this land where people were just dying a day ago. Um, and they start to play soccer games, all, small groups of men all throughout this 500-mile front line. Um, again, we have hundreds of reports of these games, but the most famous was between the 133rd Royal Saxon Regiment against a Scottish Highlander Regiment in the British Army. And so I found this great German account from uh, Lieutenant Johannes Niemann, who was a Saxon in the 133rd Royal Saxon Regiment. And he described the game as such. He goes, I beheld the incredible sight of our soldiers exchanging cigarettes, schnapps, and chocolate with the enemy. A Scottish man appeared with a football, and soon a match was underway with really, really strong like laughter and enthusiasm. He goes, us Germans really roared when a gust of wind revealed that the Scots were not wearing drawers under their kilts. He goes, we hooted and whistled and we jeered on yesterday's enemies. Yesterday's wow. enemies. Again, these were men that were just, they were just trying to kill each other two seconds ago. Um, this particular match, the Germans would go on to win three to two. Um, elsewhere, we, we have accounts of the English winning some soccer games and the Germans winning others. And uh, another really strong and powerful account I thought was um, from an English source, a man named George Aid of the Rifles Regiment. He became friends with a German artilleryman whose name he actually never found out. He never asked the man mm -hmm. um, because the conversation was relatively, relatively quick. But the conversation is marked as being talked about with, you know, the two men reminiscing about family, their uh, favorite meals to have for breakfast at home in, in England and Germany, respectively. Um, they talked about their children and how they missed missed their children on, on during the holiday. Um, and they really spoke about how they dreamed that their children would never have to fight a war like they were fighting, yeah. which is ironically enough, as historians, we know that the greatest conflict would soon to be the next generations in World War II. Um, and uh, George, when he, in his journal, he, he documents that before he parts with his newfound friend, the German speaks to him in broken broken English and goes, tomorrow you're going to fight for your country and I'm going to have to fight for mine. But to you, good luck. And that's wow. how they part. See, that's powerful to me because, you know, through the use of propaganda on both sides, I think these countries try and you, you obviously demonize your enemy. Right. It's a faceless enemy. Right. But one that you know has to be defeated. But an event like this, you've given a face, an identity, and even something deeper than that. An identity of a person who has children and has, you know, fears and hopes and dreams and aspirations mm -hmm. that you're now trying to to combat. Yeah. 
it's mind blowing. It's remarkable, um, especially knowing how destructive this war was and would be. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the very beginning, 1914. Um, but just the unifying element, like yeah. Phil was saying, it's <clears throat> remarkable. It's it's so hard to put your mind around because they even remembered the the score of one of the soccer games. Right. Like they even know who right. won. So and it's it, funny because it different accounts give that that specific game different scores, but they all are united in saying that the Germans won that one. Right. But that the English won others, and um, it, that's, it just, it, it's right. so it's so cool to to see. You know the, the heavy, heavy uh, death and killing in, in one of the worst words of all time, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then to have that human element, like Phil mentioned, yeah. to the point where there's there's other unifying factors that right. are, are almost invisible. Right. You know, it's not just a soccer game; it's an invisible um, relationship between the, the two adversaries. Well, think of the symbolism of what it meant to pave the craters with the soil that the artillery shells were, were creating. It. It's like healing wounds that were just inflicted. That's true. It was That's so symbolic. Yeah. Um, and, and we still have more accounts of down other parts of the Western Front. We have the uh, the Royal Welsh, Welsh Fusiliers. They raised a, a white flag with the words Merry Christmas on it. And soon um, the response was roaring cheers of Frohe, Froha Weihnachten, which is Merry Christmas in German. And Germans coming across the lines within a half an hour and exchanging food. And they themselves played a soccer game. In that particular account, I couldn't really figure out who won the game. It wasn't listed, but I don't <laughs> yeah. know if it even really mattered. The fact that the game was played. Um, and so here we are by the morning of Christmas of 1914. We have tens of thousands of British, Belgian, French soldiers who just put down their weapons and they're spending Christmas mingling with their German enemies all along the Western Front. Pope Benedict the Fifteenth. he had originally called for a Christmas truce, but that was pretty much ignored by all the nations. But it's funny enough, it was taken up by the actual soldiers, the men on the front line who are doing the dirty work, who are spending the time away from family, away from the comforts of, you know, the warmth of the hearth, you know, the the, the laughter of their children, just being with their family. Um, and I think the majority of the soldiers, they recognize something peculiar that a majority of them actually shared, whether it was a common upbringing uh, a rural background, professions, faith, aspirations, and, you know, the longing for family. Um, I really believe that it was these commonalities that led to what some historians believe were up to two-thirds of the soldiers on the Western Front participating in the Christmas truce in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, I will end my giving of the accounts with one of the most powerful accounts on Christmas morning, there was a British chaplain who performed a joint burial service in no man's land for the fallen on both sides. The prayers and readings were performed first in English and then translated in German. The Germans formed up on one side and the British on another with officers mixed standing in front, every hair, like every head bared, hats taken off in respect for the soldiers that had just given their lives um, to each other. And again, you know, these prayers were mutually understood. Once you translated the words, they saw that there were so many commonalities between these men on, on either side of the trenches. Um, there were plenty of photographs taken between the two sides, and there are accounts of some in some parts of the Western Front, uh, the truce actually lasted past New Year's Day because the variant the, the various regiments wanted to um, wait till the pictures were developed and see how they came out. Wow! So they didn't yeah. actually. So officers actually withheld from giving the orders to to cross and, and fire at the enemy because they because of what happened on Christmas Day. Um, we have Oswald Tilly of the London Rifles Brigade. He wrote to his family, while you were eating turkey, I was talking and shaking hands with the very men I had been trying to kill a few hours before. It was truly astounding. So these men are absolutely 
astounded. And I don't know if any of this really sank in perhaps until the war was concluded and they had time to really let all of this sink in um, and, and really affect their conscious of what, what, what just happened. Right. Um, but overall, sadly, the Christmas truce was really just that. It was a truce. It wasn't a peace. Um, there wasn't a treaty that ended the, the actual conflict. And so cooler heads in a high command did not prevail. Um, in subsequent years, they were uh, explicitly commanded not to let this happen ever again under penalty of sometimes death. Wow. So it's not necessarily that the men soldiers didn't want to do this. I think, I mean, there's many reasons. I think years of actually killing and, and the, the pain, slaughter, that all that went on maybe made it harder to fraternize with the enemy, you know, in 1915, 16, and definitely 1918. Um, and as the war drew on, it, it never did happen again. Uh, sadly, I think it's more sad that the war actually continued to draw on. True. Rather that this didn't happen again. But um, but what happened really cannot be understated. The nations had different languages, but their actions, hopes, and aspirations of the hundreds of thousands of soldiers kind of spoke with one one resonating voice. They had similar professions, a lot of times a common faith. They read the same Bible, they sang the same hymns, and they wrote a lot of times very similar letters back to home. Um, and this signified that so much was truly shared, but you know, between these soldiers of the of the various armies. But on this Christmas Day, this Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, compared to so many nights before, hope was renewed, humanity was remembered, all was calm, and all was bright. And in the hearts of soldiers on both sides, there yearned a longing for home, hope, peace on earth, and goodwill towards men. W. Edwards Deming once wrote, The world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram and liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter podcast with us, Phil Schaff and Phil Horander. So, Chris, I got to say, from from being on this side of the story and not hearing a ton about this, the, the shock and awe that goes into some of these events is, is amazing. Because when you when you hear World War One, you always hear the same kind of stories. But with something like this, there's something so unexpected about this that I think it it really conjures up a lot of questions. And I my question for you is, when I when I look at these two sides uh, of the story and I, I look at the two adversaries, that mm. they almost have like some unifying factor that they actually right. see more in common with the opposition because they believe in the same faith than they would maybe even for someone that's, you know, on their own side yeah. fighting wise yeah. on their own party line. So do you think that was, that was part of it? Because obviously this is Christmas. So it's, it's in reference to the Christian religion. Do you feel right. like there's a, there's an element of unity of faith that you could see um, more connection to the person across the no man's land than the right. people behind the trenches with you? It's, it's a great question. And it's a question that historians are actually kind of just starting to ask now. Um, research in World War One really never focused on this, um, historically speaking. And there's a lot there's a lot of scholarly works that I've encountered, mostly recent, um, kind of talking about the subject and without going into too much detail. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, the answer is is yes. Uh, the the religious perspectives that a lot of soldiers on either side have um, were were very dominant on on both on both sides. And I think it was primarily the leaders of the of those various nations that really kept the conflict going. Um, the soldiers found a lot in common with each other, whether it was religious faith or a, again, a, you know, whether it was their upbringing, their uh, professions. A lot of these men had very similar lives outside of being soldiers, mm -hmm. 
and they found that commonality. They drew from that so much, so much that they were able to allow this to happen. The fact that this happened is an absolute resounding yes to your question. I would agree. First and foremost, yeah. um, if that was not the case, this would have never happened. That's true. Um, and and so through my research, uh, that it really exposed me to a lot more of that that element of religious faith in the trenches, whether German, English, um, French, or even American. Um, and it was really astounding. Yeah, it sure was. It's an incredible story. And I, I try and put myself kind of in the mindset of these of these soldiers that you're quoting and you're telling right. the story on. And I think to myself, you know, even though the the upper echelon of, of officers regains control and the fighting ensues, the mindset had to be different, uh, at least from my perspective, in that, you know, the day after Christmas, the, the day after New Year's when you returned to fighting, mm. was it more about self-preservation as opposed to actually winning the war for a country? I hope I'm expressing that right. But yeah, it's yeah. this idea that the Christmas truce kind of gave these guys a little taste of normalcy in right. amongst the chaos and right. the dying and the fighting. And I'm wondering if, if it started to enter into their minds, I just want to be home. Right. And if the war were to end tomorrow and – all right, our country, our side didn't necessarily, quote unquote, win mm -hmm. the war, but I get mm -hmm. to return home to my family. Would I be okay with that? Right. I mean, you look at it, obviously the war goes on for years after the Christmas truce. True. But I mean, that that's kind of where I'm at. The mindset of the soldier and, yeah. and the lasting repercussions and impact that a Christmas truce has on them. Right. Well, the thing is that there are, again, thousands of accounts we have from all, all soldiers on every side. And they're not all the same, but a lot of them are very similar. Um, I think one of the biggest issues is that nobody really knew what was to come. Prior wars were not waged like this, the weapons that were going to be used. Um, I think the, the experience to come definitely hardened the hearts from here on out. I think soldiers definitely wanted, they wanted the war to end. A lot of them would have been absolutely okay if the war would have ended this night, Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. And they could have just gone home after this to their families and celebrated Christmas in their respective traditions. Um, but a lot of them would have also preferred that their nation would have come on out on top. Right. But I think it's sad to say that because the war resumed for three more bloody years, what it did to the psyche of men really was long lasting just as much as this was long lasting. And so it, it's, it's a mixed bag. It's a very layered answer that would require maybe two or three more episodes of <laughs> the missing chapter True. podcast. Um, and uh, I sadly believe that, yeah, the soldiers would have wished that, that the conflict would have ended then, but it didn't. And I think that was very scarring to a lot of soldiers and to Europe in general, um, because the, the, the environment that allowed World War II to erupt was directly formed from what happened right here. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. I'm Phil Horinder. And I'm Chris Bauer. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.